This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which is today going to feature, at least in our second half, or most of the second half of today's show, our interview with 105-year-old John Lissack. He has, as you might well imagine, a lifetime of stories to tell. I suppose anyone who lives a century will inevitably have some interesting things to relate, but John, I think it's fair to say, is going to be more interesting than most. He appeared in this program some years ago talking about how he participated in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin with Adolf Hitler in the stands, etc. But today, Mr. Miller and I are going to try and corral a bunch of other things he has to talk about and bring them before you. That's going to be fun. Stick around for that in segment two. We'll probably have a little bit left over for next week's program as well. We hope so. At which time we're going to bring you a chat with James Diogenio, investigative journalist who has been uh, turning over rocks, as it were, for many decades now and seeing what crawls out from below. In this case, he'll be referencing a character which has emerged from previously unknown FBI records uh, surrounding the assassination of John Kennedy. If any of you saw Oliver Stone's movie JFK, and I hope all of you did, you will no doubt remember the quite colorful character played by Joe Pesci in the movie. The man's name was David Ferry. He, in fact, was associated with young Lee Oswald, which, in fact, got D.A. Jim Garrison involved in the case on the weekend of the assassination. Well, let's just suffice it to say, there's some curious twists, the story of David Ferry. We'll talk about that next week. We do want to note at the onset of the show, with some sadness, the passing of Ambassador Joseph Wilson, who we're pleased to say appeared on this program three times. Back in 2002, the former diplomat was sent by the CIA to investigate whether Iraq was buying uranium yellow cake, which can be enriched to make nuclear weapons. As the former ambassador to Niger, Wilson was eminently qualified to go see what was happening there on the ground in that African country. After eight days there, he concluded there was no way that uranium yellow cake had been sold to Iraq. So when President George W. Bush alluded to the contrary in his State of the Union address. Wilson came forward, put an op-ed piece in the New York Times and saying, no, that's just not so. In retaliation, George W. Bush, or was it Dick Cheney, or was it Dick Cheney's secretary, Scooter Libby, then outed Ambassador Wilson's wife, Valerie Plame, as a CIA agent involved in the work preventing nuclear proliferation. Outing CIA agents involved in sensitive work is supposed to be a federal crime, although the finger of suspicion pointed very strongly, or perhaps most strongly, at Vice President Cheney. It was his secretary, Scooter Libby, who fell on his sword. I don't remember whether he actually served any time for that, but I do know that the current president then pardoned him fully. He had a fascinating story to tell, and we're glad we were able to tell some of it here on Radio Parallax. We would urge you to go to our archives at radioparallax.com and listen to those interviews if you didn't hear them the first time, or even if you did. You know, one part of the show we always enjoy doing, and which, I, based on feedback we get, is the part that uh, that you, the listener, 
also seem to enjoy a great deal would be the good, the bad, and the ugly. So without further ado, let's jump into that. We will rely today, as we often do, on the selections from The Week magazine, which noted that it was a good week last week for Australian dogs. Turns out that Australian dog owners can now be fined up to $2,700 if they don't walk their pets at least once a day, said Government Minister Chris Steele, for the first time under law, We are recognizing the science that animals are sentient and feel emotion and pain. Well, that may be, but it seems like in this case, what they're recognizing is the fact that dogs want to be walked. That does take me back to my days as a biological sciences major in the legendary Milton Hildebrand's course at UC Davis titled Comparative Vertebrate Anatomy, in which they explained how different types of animals are adapted to different functions. The dog was a cursorial mammal. Its body parts are designed to run, or walk, as the case may be. With those four legs working for it, the truth is, they're just better at it than we are. As I think anyone who's ever witnessed the dachshund races that take place at UC Davis's picnic day annually. Well, I'm assuming they're still holding the dachshund races and someone hasn't decided that was cruel and unusual punishment, but I digress. Was on the other hand, a bad week for keeping your eyes on the road. After a digital billboard along I-75 in Michigan started broadcasting hardcore pornography. Said driver Chuck McAdoo, I was just looking up at it and I was like, huh? Oh, wow. That's porn. Police reportedly are investigating. And it was an ugly week. Last week for, well, I guess you'd say where the press meets the legal system here in the U.S. of A. The story is that a Charlottesville, Virginia man is suing his local newspaper for defamation because it accurately reported that his ancestors owned hundreds of slaves. Edward Dixon Taylor II alleges that by disclosing his family's slave-owning past, the Seville Weekly implied that Taylor opposes the removal of Confederate monuments, quote, because he's a racist, unquote. This apparently is causing him, quote, emotional distress, unquote. And it was apparently both a bad and ugly week last week for labradoodles, when expressions of regret from Wally Condren, the inventor of the labradoodle, uh, were made public. Uh, This mixed dog breed, which is part poodle, part Labrador, was developed because it would be apparently hypoallergenic, or at least some of them were. Somehow this crossbreed caught on and became popular. Wally Conran, citing the Labrador's mercurial behavior, said the craze that the pooch sparked for creative breeding was, in his words, opening Pandora's box. He specifically referred to the dog breed's behavior as crazy. While not purporting to have any expertise in the area of dog psychology, I'd have to say, based on my limited experience, that seems about right. 
You know, we did try not to we try not to make this program a political show, although we certainly don't avoid politics. Politics are an important part of the world that we all have to live in. You can try to avoid it, but you know, we think Pericles, the Greek leader, was right when he stated that just because you don't take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. So how about the fact that Bernie Sanders apparently had a mild heart attack, went into the hospital, they grabbed a couple of stents, put him into his uh, coronary arteries, and uh, he's good to go. I guess this is both a tribute to, you know, the success of modern cardiology and how things have changed in the world of politics. The candidate starts having a heart attack, <laughs> they, they rush him in, they stop it, and his wife then says, yeah, I think I think Bernie will be ready for the next debate. You can bet your ass he's going to focus more on health care in the campaign. But, you know, maybe the more things change, the more they stay the same. Apparently, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, went on 60 Minutes last week, wherein he denied ordering the killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, but says he takes, quote, full responsibility, unquote, for the murder because, quote, it happened on my watch, unquote. Oh, he, he also called the killing a mistake. In case you're keeping track, U.S. intelligence did conclude last year that Mohammed bin Salman ordered the murder and dismemberment of Khashoggi at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul last October. The Saudis have charged 11 people in the slaying, but no one's yet been convicted in a secret trial. And this is the government... Well, government, it's, it's, it's a royal family. It's a kingdom run by one family. These are the guys we are backing in that part of the world against those terrible Iranians who sometime back in the 50s had the bad judgment to elect a prime minister who we didn't like. So, you know, we kicked him out and put a king in. Yes, that's right. America, the bulwark of democracy, puts in kings and supports kings when it suits our purposes. I don't know if any of you have caught uh, some of the uh, snippets of, of press conferences or press interactions that uh, Donald Trump's been having of late, but if you have, I think you cannot fail to be impressed with how he looks, well, deranged. Well, The Economist has referred to him as rattled. Now, it seems crystal clear to all legal scholars operating in our nation's capital that it is illegal, it is flat-out illegal for anyone to get elected to federal office by the means of having help from a foreign government. Donald Trump clearly and obviously solicited such help from the president of Ukraine last July 25th. So what is his response as this episode initiates an impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives. He goes before the press and says, you know, the Chinese ought to look into the Bidens too. Is, is that not itself an impeachable offense? Recall too, back in 2016 during the campaign, it was Donald Trump who said, Russia, if you're listening, see if you can hack into those Hillary Clinton emails, which evidence suggests people in Russia did on that very day. Anyway, let's move off of politics. Let's talk about some science stuff. Uh, yours truly, unfortunately, let his subscription to New Scientist lapse. And during the interim, the last few weeks, I see that they've completely revamped the look of the magazine. And based on this first issue I've been reading through, I note that the magazine seems to be taking a different tack on 
I guess you'd say, certainty. The cover story on the magazine was The Case of the Missing Quarks, which, to my surprise, explored the possibility that quarks, these fundamental building blocks of matter that supposedly make up protons and neutrons and a heck of a lot more in the real world, well, they just might not be real. To quote from the magazine, quarks are as fundamental as anything can be, but they are also exceedingly weird. They have strange quantum properties known as flavor and spin. They crave each other's company, clustering together in pairs or triplets. And they have a special sort of charge that comes not in positive or negative, but in colors. And now, in a twist to rival that of any experimental novel, it seems quarks may not actually exist. According to tantalizing new research, they may instead be an illusion, the product of quantum trickery we don't yet fully understand. I'll have to confess, I've never lost any sleep over the mysteries surrounding quarks. But they certainly do conform to, how was it, J.B.S. Haldane's statement that uh, the world is not queerer than we imagine, it's queerer than we can imagine. Well, something along those lines. To again quote from this, this piece by Joshua Halgago about, in the subject of physics, the hardest of the hard sciences, it is tempting to think of particles as tiny spheres whirling around like balls on a snooker table, but we have long known that particles are more enigmatic than that. The problem began with light. For centuries, scientists disagreed over its nature, with some believing it was a steady stream of particles and others calling it a wave. With the advent of quantum theory in the early 20th century, we were forced to accept the evidence that light can take on either form depending on the situation. The same reasoning that had been applied to photons of light was now extended to all other particles. Electrons, protons, neutrons, even quarks, can all be said to exist as waves as well as particles. Things only got more muddled from there. Anyway, I have to confess, this piece, simple though it may be, I think is just over my head, and I can't do it justice, but you, dear listener, if you're interested, can always, um, you know, find a copy of it and check it out. I was just quite enticed by several of the quotes that appeared in it, like this one. At first, no one was sure whether quarks were real particles or just a helpful organizing idea. In a 1972 lecture, Murray Gell-Mann, who developed the concept of quarks, warned his audience against invoking, quote, fictitious objects in our models that end up turning into real monsters that devour us, unquote. I'm hoping in the next few weeks to uh, sit down with a, a Stanford Linear Accelerator physicist and see if he can help tutor me on some of this. And if he's successful, I'll try to pass it along. Since we're talking about uncertainty, let's talk about something that's a little closer to home for yours truly. How about this headline? Avoiding red meat doesn't seem to give any health benefits. Well, Mr. Millen would argue that's certainly not true for the cow. But to quote from the piece, there are no health reasons to cut down on eating red or processed meat according to a new review of the evidence. Numerous health bodies have said for decades that we should limit our intake of red meat because it is high in saturated fat, thought to raise cholesterol levels and cause heart attacks. More recently, both red and processed meats have been linked with cancer. However, most research in this area is of a type that's thought to be unreliable as it simply observes what people choose to eat. The best research, of course, involves randomized trials in which some people are helped to change their diet in a certain way, such as eating less meat, and the rest aren't. 
with their health compared in the end. Such trials are rare because they are costly and harder to run. Bradley Johnson of Dalhousie University in Canada and his colleagues reviewed the 12 randomized trials that have been done in this area and found little or no health benefit for people who cut down on eating these meats. I gotta say, as someone who was a practicing physician for many a decade, this is a bit eyebrow-raising. I gotta say, I was never completely convinced by the arguments made against red meat. I, 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 I never believed the arguments made against eggs. And frankly, I had my doubts about all this concentration on why we should, you know, how we need to be eating less fat. As talked about in this program many times in the past, the jury seems to be in on that last one. And no, all these efforts over the past generation plus to have everybody in America or in the world try and switch away from a fatty diet to one where we eat more, well, starches to replace them, does not seem to be beneficial health-wise, or at least not to the degree that we hoped. I'm adding that disclaimer to kind of give myself some rigor room because the fact of the matter is when it's all said and done, the evidence looks pretty bad for the advice that we doctors have been dispensing for quite some time now. Anyway, back to the study. The authors of it concluded that people should continue to eat their current level of red and processed meat unless they felt inclined to change them themselves. Of course, some add that they might want to change their diet for animal welfare reasons or environmental reasons, considering the effect that, uh, that cattle are having on greenhouse gases and destruction of the rainforest, etc. We never have finished running down that, that assertion made by, I forget who now at this point, but on the show a couple years back, that cattle and the raising of cattle was causing a more deleterious effect on greenhouse gases than were all of our burning of fossil fuels. That seems incredible, but it might be true. We just uh, need more data. If you have more data on that, by all means, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Anyway, in conclusion, uh, Dwayne Meller of the British Dietetic Association said people shouldn't take this advice as a green light to eat more red meat said what it doesn't say is we can tear up the guidelines and start eating twice as much meat. But red meat three times a week is not a problem. Something that apparently is a problem or potentially is a problem also comes from this issue of New Scientist. And, and I, I, was, I was completely taken aback by this one. I've used a tea bag or two in, in, my, in my lifetime, and I'm, I'm sure you have as well my dear listener, but I did not realize, and I don't think you did either, that apparently a lot of tea is being purveyed in plastic tea bags. I always assumed they were made of paper or some form of fine cloth. Well, we all know how cheap plastic is, and apparently uh, the People who are trying to sell us tea gone down that route, at least in some instances. I, I don't know from, from this piece how much of tea is being sold in plastic bags, but I think we need to find out because tea drinkers are being urged to avoid these plastic tea bags after tests have found they release billions of particles of microplastic. A team in Canada has found that steeping a plastic tea bag at a brewing temperature of 95 Celsius releases about 11 billion microplastics, tiny bits of 
plastic between 100 nanometers and 5 millimeters in size. That is several orders of magnitude higher than the number found in other foods and drinks such as bottled water. One lump of microplastics or two? Anyway, this study comes from McGill University where a team bought four different tea bags from shops and cafes in Montreal, cut them open and washed them, steeped them in 95 degrees Celsius water and analyzed the water with electron microscopes and spectroscopy. Now, we're increasingly finding bits of plastic in our drinking water, but the WHO is saying there's no evidence that this is a health risk for people. Well, I don't know. Apparently, the McGill University people, to test the possible effects of particles released by these plastic tea bags, exposed water fleas to the water from the washed tea bags. They noted the particles did not kill the water fleas, but did cause significant behavioral effects and developmental malformations. Holy mackerel! Of course, they add by saying, more research is required to test the effects on humans. But in the meantime, they're suggesting that it might be a good idea to avoid plastic tea bags. Continuing the theme from this same issue about stuff we need to know more about, which I guess is what science is all about, but how about this? The movement of carbon around our planet is pretty well understood, or at least we think, but estimating the amounts in each bit of the Earth is a monumental job. In 2009, they established the Deep Carbon Observatory, whose goal has been to estimate the scale of the carbon cycle. This involves everything from measuring the release of CO2 from volcanoes to studying diamonds from the Earth's mantle. Well, they're trying to quantify all of it, and here's what surprises me. According to the people doing this, the majority of carbon is very deep in the Earth's mantle and in the Earth's core. The land, air, and ocean have only 43.5 trillion tons. Seems like a lot to me, but that's less than 1% of the total. Apparently a lot of this stuff got locked up before life got cranked up. It's believed in the last 500 million years when complex animal life has existed on Earth, the carbon cycle has more or less been in balance, or at least 99% of the time it's been in balance. They note there were four periods when the cycle became unbalanced. One of them was about a million years ago when there was major volcanic eruptions. And one of them is, unfortunately, taking place right now. Filling out this theme of we don't know is the, a feature article in the magazine noting that trees absorb carbon and are our most powerful ally against climate change, but we still don't know their full potential, and that is set to change. There's a lot of hope that, uh, that satellite technology monitoring the forests of the world will enable us to understand this better. And I gotta say, this does seem like a bit of a no-brainer. We have chopped down such a high percentage of the forests on planet Earth that merely letting them regrow is going to pay big dividends. Of course, there's the rub. Who's going to let them regrow when you make money by growing other stuff besides forests? There's a bit of good news in all of this, and I think we're starved for that. To quote from one of the sidebars in the piece, Reforestation offers the greatest potential because trees contain so much carbon, and historic deforestation means there are large areas of land that could be restored to woodland. Coastal habitats offer a similar opportunity. The available area may be less, but the carbon payback is greater. Lined with mangroves, salt marshes, and seagrass meadows, coastal ecosystems are repositories of blue carbon. 
While forests hold most of their carbon within woody biomass, coastal plants pull carbon out of the air and water and channel it through their roots deep into the ground, burying it indefinitely provided the system stays healthy. As a result, coastal plants can absorb many times more carbon than trees covering the same area. A seagrass meadow, for example, contains anywhere from 10 to 40 times as much, 95% of which is stored in sediment. The problem is, as we report on the show in the past, sadly, more than once, these aquatic ecosystems are disappearing. Mangroves and coastal marshes are often removed to make way for coastal development, and seagrasses are dying as pollution depletes oxygen levels in coastal waters. It is estimated that approximately one-third of blue carbon sinks have already vanished. Ouch! They do point out that some efforts to uh, restore seagrass meadows in this case, Chesapeake Bay, has increased um, the levels found there by 8% last year. That's good. They're learning how to do this most effectively. It turns out that planting seedlings was the most successful because shifting shorelines and sediment accretion made it hard for seeds to get established. Folks want to see these techniques adopted on a massive scale. They point out that seagrasses have the potential to grow in coastal waters all over the world, excepting Antarctica. So blue carbon sinks could play a significant part in efforts to curb global warming, not to mention beautifying our coastlines. All right, and finally, in the two minutes I have left, I'm again going to go to this venerable magazine to pull out an item I wish I'd had before I'd gone to Great Basin National Park last week to enjoy the dark skies. Abigail Beale, science writer, had a little cutout section of the magazine which allows you to test your light pollution. You can do this by counting stars within a certain area, and the area that she chose to work with was the Great Square of Pegasus. I can tell you how to find it if you don't know how, but the best thing to do is get a chart. Picture's worth a thousand words. Adele Beale's test is to count the number of stars you find within that Great Square of Pegasus. Now, offhand, I was thinking about it and thought, well, there must, must be, I don't know, at least a... 15. Well, it turns out only if you're observing takes you down to sixth magnitude, which is pretty darned good observing conditions. At that point, you will find 13 stars within the Great Square. I went out in the light-polluted Bay Area to put this to the test uh, last night and discovered that I could really for sure only see one, maybe two, maybe three, but for sure one, which means that viewing conditions in the Bay Area is down to 4.5 magnitude, which is frankly better than I thought, but not what you'd like. What is the largest possible number you might encounter, you ask? Well, it turns out that under perfect, absolutely perfect viewing conditions, and you probably have to be down in the Atacama Desert, or maybe, you know, in Anza Borrego here in California, or near Mount Lassen, a dark sky area, or back out in eastern Nevada, at that point you can see down to 6.5 magnitude. Yes, the bigger the number, the dimmer the star. If you do find yourself in such optimal conditions, you might be able to count 35 stars within the Great Square. Now, if I'd known this two weeks ago, I would have put it to the test out there in Nevada, and I, I'm really curious to see what number we would have come up with. Still want to put a plug in for going where the skies are dark. When you can see the Milky Way from one horizon to the other, it's just a magnificent, moving experience that too few people ever get to encounter. What we need to encounter right now is a short 
break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around and we'll have a look back through the 20th century through the eyes of our friend John Lissack. <laughs> 